Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This one is with Amin Hassan of ESPN Insider and ESPN more generally, and something that was a long time coming because the last time I believe it was he was on the podcast, I talked about the idea of the Nene test, and what the Nene test is is when you sign a guy, whether the combination of player or contract is an asset. And so he and I talked a while ago about the idea of going through a bunch of guys and saying, are they an asset, are they not? And one of the things that was fun about it is when we originally talked about it, it was when the the new salary cap was out, but not the new TV deal. And we talk a lot about how that affects it. So that is the foundation for the podcast. So it's guys like Nikola Pekovic, Avery Bradley, Kenneth Fareed, some of the newly extended guys, Fareed, Rubio, etc. And then we also talk about a lot of broad stuff. It's Amin and I. So we go on to all sorts of things. Conversation runs about an hour 35. It was so much fun having him on. I love talking about basketball, talking about the NBA with him because he has such a good mind for it and we could bounce between topics pretty seamlessly. So hope you enjoy it. I had a lot of fun doing it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. No problem. So the original idea for this podcast was the last time I think it was you and I talked, we were talking about the idea of the Nene test. And basically what that is for listeners is it's the concept of whether a player and a contract are an asset or not. And what we had talked about was the idea of going through some players and figuring out and discussing whether those players pass the Nene test or fail it and by how much. Yes. Although, you know, what's funny. Last time we talked about this, Obviously, the TV deal hadn't been discussed, and I'm trying to remember whether even the cap had been released. 
I think the cap was out, but we didn't know the new announcement of where it looks like it might be going, whether smoothed or not smoothed. Right, right. But definitely before the TV money thing came out. So uh, bearing in mind that many of these contracts that we were talking about, almost every contract that's being signed right now will probably look good in two years. But for the purposes of this discussion, let's just make it for right now. Let's just assume that the current conditions continue. Yeah, and some of the more interesting ones also expire kind of in the early days of the TV deal, so those ones will stay pretty much the solid. The one that I want to start with is the one that I'm really interested in, and that's Nikola Pekovic, because when his contract was signed, I think it was a little bit high, but people thought it thought it you know was fine. But it's changed over the last year or so. Yeah, you know, here's the hard thing, and Ethan Strauss talks about this a lot that your big has to either be a defensive kind of anchor or really, 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 really good offensively. And and when we say really, really good offensively, it has to be skilled in terms of being able to space the floor. Because if you have an offensive center whose talents all lie around the rim area, that means your other big not only has to be a very good defender, but also has to be a guy who can space the floor. You know, preferably to three, but I mean, being realistic, we're saying that's at 16, 20 feet. And when you look at the list of guys who can, who are good defensively and can shoot and are big, it's a very, very short list. So when you think about it in that terms of that dynamic, you look at Peck, everything he gets is around the basket. He's a good offensive rebounder. He's not a good defensive rebounder. He's not known for uh, his rim protection. He's definitely not fleet of foot out on the perimeter guarding pick and rolls, it makes finding that other big that fits with him a much tougher endeavor unless you're just so good offensively, it doesn't matter if your bigs are not that good defensively. Yeah, I think that the the big issue with Pekovic is that you talked about that his defensive rebounding has issues, and I think that's the big part of it because if you can get that, at least from a guy, and I think that's part of with Kevin Love, though I think his defense is hurt by his defensive rebounding, in Kevin's case, I think that that's what makes Pekovic so hard to pair is that there are very few rim protectors at the four. There are very few rim protectors at the four, period, but there are even fewer of them that also get the rebounds because that's a lot to ask of a guy to be able to be your primary rebounder and your primary rim protector. Yeah, uh, I will I will push back on the idea that Pekovic is defensive rebounding suffered because of Kevin Love. I mean, you can look through his career, and Kevin Love hasn't been the most durable guy. His de- his defensive rebounding never spikes. It stays at a below below optimal levels for a center, uh, particularly for someone who is, who is as immobile as he is, right? Oh, you know? I agree. I agree with you completely. So, I was just saying it in terms of that you can have a guy who's a shaky defender, but if at least they can get defensive rebounds, then at least they're ending some right. possessions. Yeah, to me, exactly. That's the difference between the two. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So would you say that he is not that you would say that he falls on the negative side that he's not an a net asset right now? He fails in the net test. Let's use the jargon. We didn't make it up for nothing, Danny. Let's use the jargon. He fails in the net test. I think that I, I don't I don't see anyone wanting to trade for him because again, pairing him with a an optimal complementary big is so difficult. Yeah, and exactly, at that price, because you're getting him at a pretty high price, Oklahoma City, I think he would be a nice piece for them because Ibaka is the natural guy to pair him with, but mm. they're not going to spend that kind of money on him. So and, that's, and, why he, that's why he fails the test in that way. And, and by the way, 
another way to think about this is would I rather be paying thirteen million for him or a mil and a half or however much they're paying for Steven Adams for what they need out of that position. Obviously when everyone's healthy, but they're not now maybe it becomes more of a, a need because they need offensive firepower with Westbrook and Durant out. But in general, I think Adams is a much better fit money aside and then throwing money because of the no blainer. I agree with you completely. We'll move on to a guy that I'm really interested in also because it was a contract that was signed this summer. Avery Bradley. Hey, oof, this is a tough one. I think Bradley, in time, will be a good contract. Right now, I guess, right now, as we sit with eight, as you get eight mil, 32 over four was his deal. Yeah, um, 32 over four sounds about right. Yeah, it just, no. <laughs> no, because he's not prolific enough a three-point shooter. I know he improved tremendously after the all-star break last year. But in general, you know, I, I'm not a believer. I'm a skeptic, and I, and I can understand if if you believe he is that good of a three-point shooter, uh, and his defensive ability, you can say he can be a three and D guy. It's interesting because I look at his deal and I wonder what Danny Green is going to get as a free agent now. Because Danny Green is going to look at it and say, I'm bigger than Avery Bradley, and I'm way, way, way better a shooter. And if he got eight, then how much is Danny Green worth? Same thing. You know, we look around, we see Jimmy Butler, unextended, Kawhi Leonard, unextended. You know, those guys, I'm pretty sure their agents, Avery Bradley got 32. You know, Alex Burks got 42. You know, once that's the starting point, those other guys, you know, it it shifts the whole market. So at the time when Bradley signed it, I was really down. But I can see probably within, like, within 12 months, it'll be – average, I guess, or, or, or a decent contract. What I find interesting about the way that you describe Avery is that I've always considered his natural defensive position to be point guard. I also partially yep. because I cover the Warriors, and he was the best defender probably on Stephen Curry. Kent Bazemore even said that. I asked him who he thought did the best job on Curry, and he unprompted said Avery Bradley. And why I'm lower on Avery is that if you're playing the point guard in the NBA, if you're defending point guards, even though there are some guys who can run an offense from the two and the three and the four, it's a really hard thing to overcome for a team to have your point guard not be able to run an offense. We're seeing that with Indiana with George Hill when he gets back, and we saw it with them last year. And if you see Avery as a as a shooting guard, I actually think that his value goes up because what you're asking him to do offensively is so much easier to manage. And so I think that helps him a lot. Again, I, I, when we talk about Avery Bradley, I think it's the same thing as Pekovic, but not as difficult a compliment. And what, you, what you're saying is correct. He's a very good defensive player on point guards. He can guard some twos. Beyond that, then you're starting to put, you know, waver a bit there because of his size. So you're saying he guards point guards but very well, which I think is a big thing. It's a big deal in today's game where everybody has a, a high-level point guard. You need someone who's able – to defend that, and, and that's the value that he brings. But on the flip side, now you have to say, well, my other, either my two or my three better be an incredible playmaking guy. So I'll give you an example of a team where Avery Bradley would just look like a absolute stud. Houston Rockets. So I'm talking oh, he'd deal. be great there. He'd, he'd be, be great, great there. there. Except they have, for now, they have Pat Beverly at like 900 grand, and he's basically a, a 
he doesn't guard. He can't guard up like Bradley can. But as far as point guard defensively, he does as good a job as you could ask anyone. The other I, reason I, that I really love that is because. I think that part of Harden's flaw defensively is that is his attention, and I think that he would actually, if you had a, a a team that had a better two guard than point guard, you could put Harden on the one, and he might actually do okay. It's just my theory with him. I've never oh, seen it really in action. No, I mean, and, and that's what it is. As you watch around here, that's what it is. Everything Harden is an initiator, all part of the ball handler, and so it makes sense that the other guy should be someone who doesn't need the ball as much it's kind of it's, it's weird it's like a perversion of the Aaron McKee Allen Iverson dynamic well, Allen Iverson is a small guy he's a point guard body but he really needs the ball a lot and he shoots a lot so we need someone else who can guard twos and also be kind of a playmaker you know handle that handle the the offensive side of point guard and still do the defensive side of two guard and that's what Aaron McKee was that's why he was a perfect fit that's why Eric Snow was also a pretty good fit alongside Iverson because he could guard up. Here we're seeing kind of like and the perversion is Harden's got the offensive side of point guard, but we needed someone who can actually guard the point guard. You can handle the defensive duties. And again, that's where a Pat Beverly or Avery Bradley get in. Another another type of scenario is I could see like New Orleans where he plays alongside Drew Holiday and both of those guys can guard either position, kind of like in a two-point guard, but he's not really a point guard type scenario. The Suns, if they didn't have a Zillion point guard, if it was just Goran Dragic, I think you could put Avery Bradley alongside him, and it would be a nice two-man compliment, although not obviously nowhere near as good as Dragic and, and Bledsoe. He, I think he'd be a great third yeah. guard with the Cavs. Yes, yes. If, like, uh, that, he'd be a, a beautiful third guard with them, I th- even second if you had the right circumstance. Yes, yes, I, I think that that would be a, a nice look there. But again, you see, you see the the difference, right? Whereas I could say I put Danny Green on almost any roster in this league, and he'll be an asset at you know, let's say eight million dollars a year. With Avery Bradley, we have to play this game. Well, do they have a point guard who's big enough, or do they have a wing? Once you start playing that game, I think that's that's when you start getting in trouble. Now, the pro- the main problem for Boston is they fail that criteria, right? They don't really have, I mean, they do in Rondo, but now you're playing with an undersized backcourt because neither of those guys are particularly big. Or uh, You know, Avery Rodgers can play bigger some, but then you're still kind of in trouble there. Mark is smart, maybe, but I'm not a big believer Mark offensively. I'm going to go I'm going to go with details in the nature. But I, I, he's the type of contract that, like I said, in 12 months, we'll be like, oh, what a steal. Yeah, I think that he fails it because, as you said, the pool of teams that would be benef- that would benefit from him is so small. I think that on those teams he has incredible value, but there aren't many of them. And there are a lot of guys who maybe they aren't as good at Avery Bradley at what he does, but they can do it pretty similarly. And it's a nice thing to have. And I think that's the same reason why, to me, George Hill fails the Nene test because he gave, makes similar money. I, I think that he has a little bit less potential as an offensive player because he's further along in his development. Do you agree with that, that if you were comparing apples to apples, that you'd rather have Bradley in his contract to George Hill in his? Yeah, and it's essentially the same contract, I believe, $8 million a year. But Bradley's a better defender. And at least with Bradley, I don't know, it's kind of weird. The expectation has never been for Bradley to be a, a creator, whereas George Hill, for some reason, had that expectation at some point. I never felt like he was a point guard. 
felt like he was a guy that fit the Spurs system. They guards and and he, he spaces. And at eight million a year, that's tough. Particularly again in his situation, playing for Team Indiana, where dollars are not exactly, you know, there's, they're, they're not exactly the, the big spenders over there. The, the other thing I would point out is is replaceability. And this concept of if I didn't have George Hill, could I get a reasonable facsimile for a lot less money? And, and this goes back to kind of my theory about this is where the game is going, or at least the financial aspect of the game. We got guys who are cornerstone building blocks, and then we have the churn. And being part of the churn doesn't mean you're a bad player. You know, you're valuable. You can be a huge, valuable contributor. But it means that I am not going to break the bank to keep you around because I can find a reasonable facsimile. Excellent example, Gary Neal. Gary Neal was a big contributor for the Spurs, you know, over the last couple of years. You know, he he, he did everything that they needed as far as being a spacer and kind of being a little bit of a playmaker and being good enough defensively. Obviously, not not tremendous, but most of all, someone who could come in off the bench and hit five threes and change the complexion of a game. Gary Neal comes up in free agency, and what do they do? They let him walk and they replace him with Patty Mills. Patty Mills. That's the churn right there. That's that's what it is. It's like okay. Should I pay you, or can I get a reasonable factor? He may not be as good as you right now, but he's good enough to kind of replicate what you did for us for a better number. And that's why Gary Neal's out there. But also, that's where a lot of these guys fall under. And being a cornerstone doesn't necessarily mean you are a star player. You can be a player with very rare talent. So Avery Bradley, for instance, because he's so great, defensively on point guards. It's a rare talent. But for for George Hill, not as much, right? I, I feel like you can get someone who can do what George Hill does for a lot less than than what you're paying him. So I'm I'm gonna say no I know I, I said no to Avery Bradley, but I'm gonna say a definite no to George Hill. I think you bring up a great point with the Spurs, and the other part of that, which makes them so much more flexible at point guard, is that they have they bring in guys like Boris Diaw, and they've had Manu Ginobili the whole time, who can be both primary and secondary ball handlers at other positions. So you're not looking for a point guard who has to stir the drink the whole time. You can get a guy like Patty Mills, who's comfortable playing off the ball, and that again changes the replaceability because if you can get a small guy who can play off the ball and shoot. There are a ton of those guys who are in the league either at a high level like Monte Ellis or at a lower level like Patty Mills. Right, absolutely. And that goes back to, you know, do we have an ecosystem where this guy can be successful? From what you've seen, I, I, I would guess it would be mostly summer league and college. Do you feel like Kyle Anderson is going to be good enough to to ease that burden on whoever is the next Spurs guy, the next Patty Mills? Well, in a generic way, yes. Obviously, in terms of what he'll do for them will be different from what Mills and Gary Neal and Marco Bellinelli do. He'll be more, I feel like he, his trajectory is a guy that fills in the Manu Boris Dial role, the playmaker. He'll be the guy that allows people like Patty Mills to be who they are. Does that make sense? And, yeah, and, that, I think that's what they want from him. Yep. Yeah, and, and I think that it's so nice because those guys are actually pretty rare in the league. I mean, obviously you have the guys like LeBron that do it at that level, but those guys, they change teams when they want to change teams. You don't have to worry about how much you're going to pay LeBron because you're paying him the max. 
But the guys who do that at kind of that low-level starter, high-level reserve are strangely valuable. But for some reason, it seems like, well, the Spurs paid Diaw fairly, but that the market on them isn't as high as the flexibility they provide. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what the most, the rarest talent in our league right now is, is passing. Look around. Look for guys who are truly great passers. More specifically, great passers who don't need the ball in their hands all the time. Because there are a lot of those guys. If you let me dribble for 23 seconds, I'll get you a pass. But guys like, like Boris Diaw, like Andre Iguodala. Would you put Marcus Kev- Gasol on that list? Marcus Gasol, absolutely. That ability to Powell? make quick decisions. Powell, yes. Quick decisions. So to me, and, I, and I, uh, Josh McRoberts is another one. The quick reaction time passing. True vision. Not the obvious play. Defense collapse. There's a guy wide open. Most players can do that, and a lot of it comes out to whether they feel like doing it or not. But I'm talking about how did he see that? How did he anticipate that someone would be there? There aren't that many of those players there. There's only a handful across the league, and that's and that's what makes a team like the Spurs so special is they got a couple of those guys, and then it, and then it becomes contagious for everybody else. And incidentally, even though he ended up playing what people call the point guard, Magic was another one of those guys. I mean, in today's NBA, I think Magic would probably be defending twos and threes. Well, yeah, that's what he, I mean, that's what he did anyway. They didn't have Byron Scott yeah. kind of guard the smaller guys. Uh, yeah, or yeah. didn't Nixon early in his career, right? Yes, yes, Monroe Nixon and, and Coop and all those guys. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, and, and Magic would probably be a power forward today. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think he'd do a great job at it. But, yeah, I mean, that's, Again, I think that's something that's really underrated as far as, I don't know if the market will correct for it, but I, I think that's what puts a team like the Spurs ahead. I think even, you know, we talk about the Heat, you know, the last four years with LeBron and, and Wade and Bosch is a pretty good passer as well. That's something special. And that's what that's why, whereas people are like, oh, the Cavs, I'm not sure. Yeah, I know they have their flaws. But I look also there like, oh my gosh, this, this team has the potential to be extremely explosive offensively just because they have so many great, great and willing passers. And same thing you could say about the Warriors. Uh, I know you were talking about this today on Twitter, uh, watching them play against the Blazers, but they just have so many great passers. You know, Iguodala and Bogut and Livingston and Curry and Lee. I mean, it just goes on and like, I, at some point, you know, as a defense, it just gets too hard to guard a team of people who like to pass the ball and like to move without the ball. Because, you know, the whole purpose of good offense is to get the defense discombobulated moving. And that's what that's what good passes do. They make the, the defense move. And that's going to be one of Kerr's really fun creative challenges with this team is that I think they have more passers than they have quality ball handlers. And so it's how do you use that? How do you how do you maximize that and make it so that the other teams are discombobulated, but you're not asking David Lee to, like, handle the ball and do that to just make a decision where he is because he's incredible at that. Yeah, I mean, again, it's all about a, an offensive playbook that plays to the strength of your personnel. So – you know that Lee's a great passer. He's a great passer of Florida. He's a very good passer to make. You know, you bring him here, you put him at the elbow, put him in the, in, in the in the low post. You have the, you know, they're doing the split cuts to the guys and then put him in a dribble handoff, and he's good at taking that stuff, and he's good at dump off and backdoor 
little drop-off passes. Just trusting your guys. That's just a big thing. Especially when you have talented players who know how to play. Trust is the biggest thing, and it's the hardest thing a lot of times for coaches is to relinquish that control and say, look, I believe that you're willing to make the right decision. Um, Now, obviously, this is not a privilege that you bestow upon any player, but again, when you talk about Bogut and Lee and Draymond Green and Curry and Livingston, and these are guys who are worthy of that. They truly are people who play for the past, I believe. And that's what that's what Curry's doing is empowering them. So he's putting them in a position to be successful, and he's empowering them to make their own decisions. I think the same can be said for the guys who aren't great passers on that team. Clay Thompson obviously has a couple of really, really high-profile games to start the year. But I think Harrison Barnes is going to come along as well as he's placed in, in positions that play to his strengths and not so much kind of things that he's not good at. Well, and that's the I think that's the biggest indictment that I have for Mark Jackson as a coach is that it seemed like he wanted to do his thing and he didn't acknowledge the special circumstances that he was presented. He like when it, it, it yielded advantages at moments, but then there were other times I talked about it tonight that you remember, Oh, Andrew Bogut is such an incredible yeah. offensive player. And you go, yeah, that was true when he was in Milwaukee. It was true when he was traded to the Warriors. It just never materialized with them. And obviously that's not really Andrew's fault. Yeah, you know, it's funny. He was really a, a really high-level offensive player early in his career until the elbow injury, and then it kind of shook up his confidence or, or what have you. But, you know, I think it also speaks to – if you're Mark Jackson, first of all, you, you have to credit him for the defense this year. Like, Kerr walks into a team that is already elite defensively. you got to give Mark Jackson credit for that. Absolutely. Um, and, and also, it, you kind of have to – it's weird because I think I always talk about this. There's some coaches that get you from A to B and some coaches that get you from B to C. And Mark Jackson was an A to B guy. He got as, as far as he could with his abilities, and now it's time for someone else to take them further because of his limitations. And specifically, I wonder, as a point guard, as a great one of the great point guards of his generation and perhaps all time, how hard is it for him to relinquish control, like we talked about with coaches? Because he's always used that, he, even though he had that privilege that we talked about earlier, the privilege of trust me, I know what I'm doing, I can make things happen. It's a little different when the role's reversed. Now you have to relinquish that control to someone else. I can see how that's difficult for him. I, the reason why I bring this up is, you got to remember, this is Mark Jackson's first coaching job. So I wonder, the next time he, he gets somewhere, Will his philosophies have changed offensively? Will he have learned from this experience? And maybe, you know, now he's watching and he's picking up things that other coaches are doing and, and going to coaching clinics and like all the coaches do in the off season. And, you know, maybe he'll be different moving forward. But for this team, at where they were, I think this is a good transition. And, and I think, like you said, it, 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 you can you go no further than you're looking at a player like Andrew Bogut, who – who basically got reduced to Omar Rashid in the last couple of years. Good defender, good rebounder. We just passed the team when a layup right at the rim. To, oh, my gosh, this guy's like the second coming of Sabonis. There are these no passes, which we all already knew he could do. Yeah, and it makes me think about how 
our perception of players changes based on the situations that they're put in. And I, I think about that, like, there was a lot of conversation, he's obviously breaking out right now, about how Clay Thompson would look if he was in the Spurs system and if Kawhi went to the Warriors, because they were drafted very close to each other in that year. And I think that we're finally seeing more of what Clay can look like. Obviously, he's improved a lot, too. But what he can look like with somebody who asks him to do more than he was asked to do before, because I think Clay did a great job at being asked to do a very easy job. And now they're asking him to do a harder thing, and he seems to be embracing it. You think so? I think it's the opposite. I think he was asked to do things that he wasn't very good at. Putting Clay Thompson in isolation is just, I just don't get it. The ISO is a great is is a great point, but I was thinking more in terms of a lot of times he wasn't asked to pass the ball. You know, like he was, they'd put him in the corner and they'd say, if you're open, shoot it. The ISOs were a separate separate incidents when they're like, oh, he's taller than the guy. That's another Mark Jackson thing. Oh, he's a lot bigger. He can do that. I think that there were two different things. I, I think that the ISOs decreased his efficiency and were poor use, but all the rest of the offense, basically, it seemed like he was just a catch-and-shoot guy. Yeah, I mean... I- Here's the thing. He is an elite catch-and-shoot guy. And it, 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 it all ties together. It all ties together. The ISOs and everything. Because he's an elite catch-and-shoot guy. And if you put him in the right situation, I don't think you'll ever make him into a great passer, but you'll put him in situations where passing looks a lot easier. So most of the stuff I'm running for Clay is off-screens and curls and pin-downs. And defenders, because of his great shooting ability, are forced to lock and trail. They gotta basically grab the back of his uh, shorts and follow him, and not try to keep and you know shoot the gap, which which opens up their opportunities. When you do that, it, you know uh, he, when you come off like that, and you tell him, by the way, when you come off, and if they're really hugged up on you, on your back, that big is gonna help defensively the one that you're coming off of his screen. And if he helps defensively, guess who's wide open now? The guy who just sent you the screen. So, Clay, when you're coming off of this screen, as soon as you see the big help and you can feel your man still on you, you know that pass is available. You know, and, and things like that. So we're putting him in situations that are more suited to him scoring, but we're also making it a lot simpler for him. Whereas in isolation, you gotta read. You gotta read a lot more. You gotta read whether this guy is is stunting. Is, is he coming all the way? Is he just cheating? Is he is he sitting in the paint? Is he hugged up on his guy? There's so much more going on when you're isolating, especially when you can't dribble for more than you know two one or two beats. It, it makes life so much harder, and that's why I think you know even though we could say he's being asked to carry a larger share of the offense this year so far, it's still easier because it's stuff that naturally flows with what he's good at. That's an excellent point. How would you compare that to what Phoenix is trying to do or did last year with Gerald Green? Yeah, that's just go ahead and go out and shoot, man. <laughs> that's, that's, you are an explosive scorer. You have flaws. Other teams hold those flaws against you, and that's why you haven't been able to find a home. But we won't. We like, we, you know, Mark West is a coach on that staff. Mark West, I work with Mark West in the front office. And Mark West, one of his favorite things is always, they all have warts. Right? Meaning every single player, other than LeBron and Tim Duncan, they all have something that they're not good at. And you can drive yourself crazy and talk yourself out of any guy because of those warts. Or 
So you can look at what they do well and use it, exploit it, use it as a tool. And that's what that's really what the Suns did with, with Gerald Green. It's like especially when you consider Bledsoe's out, we need scoring, we need a starting two, we need the spacing. This guy does all of those things. Okay, so he's a space killer defensively. Okay, so his shot selection, you know, sometimes can drive you nuts. You can live with it, you know, because the positives outweigh the negatives in the scenario that he was in. This year, I don't know if that's the case. Because now they do have guys who, who can do it, who can be a little bit more consistent, more, you know, more uh, attention to detail, et cetera, et cetera. We'll move on to another guy that's one of my favorite worst guys, and that's JaVale McGee. Because there are certain things that he's just incredible at, but at the same point, he's also JaVale McGee. Do you think that he passes or fails in the NA test? I think he's failing it right now. Um, again, he was hurt last year, so this year he's still kind of get, trying to get a few eggs under him. But he's a space cadet. You know, the worst thing you can be in this league, I think, is unpredictable, uh, mercurial. Guys want to know what they're getting night to night, whatever it is. When we talk about warts, I just want to know, okay, these are the warts, and the warts will always be these warts, and they won't change from night to night. You know, Amari Sotomayor was an awful defensive player, but he was consistently awful. It wasn't like sometimes he'd get it, and then other times he wouldn't. And he was consistently incredible offensively. So you knew you could plan around things like that. Like, look, we know he's going to mess up, so you better be able to get there and, and help him out on the backside because we know it's going to happen. And obviously, offensively, you can count on him 25 in his sleep every night. There's nothing you can really count on your Dome McGee for. He just gives you flashes and glimpses and rays of light here and there, but he's not, he's not consistent. That's what makes him a liability out there. And then obviously it's not like he has the best attitude in the world. It's not like he's a good kid, you know, and obviously when I mean good and bad, I don't mean like ax murderer. I just mean like a great teammate and great attitude, positive can-do attitude and just doesn't, you know, doesn't know any better. He he can be a little bit of a, a handful. And that, again, that makes it even, that makes it even harder to deal with. He also, to me, toes a weird line between being a shot blocker and being a rim protector because it feels like he gets out of position enough. And I think this is what DeAndre has gotten improved on the most, though he's still not all the way there, is that if all you are is a shot blocker, then other people are getting opportunities. But if you're like a a more all-around rim protector, I think of Bogut's a good example of that. Hibbert, when he's on, I think is another example of that. There's a different quality to that beyond just being a good shot blocker. You can't anchor a defense around Jerome McGee. His stats look nice. You can't anchor a defense around them because, as you said, he, he pays little attention to the defensive scheme, to being in the right position, to staying on your feet, to contesting rather than committing and getting the block and sometimes getting faked out and sometimes drawing unnecessary foul. Those are those are the things, you know, again, Bogut, Oshin, Hibbert, Gasol, Tyson Chandler, all of those guys, I believe, they're not incredible shot blockers. And I, I got to look that up. But they're all good shot blockers on a, on a statistical level, one and a half to two. They're not four or five block shot guys. Maybe Hibbert a little bit. But the rest of those guys, not so much. But that's not 
that's how what makes them great defensive players, right? What makes them great defensive players is they're in the right place at the right time consistently. And they can make people change, change what their, their offense, change what they want to do offensively because of, simply because of their presence. McGee's not in that, in that threshold. Robert Lopez is another one. Good shot block. He's not a tremendous, he's not, he's not blocking, you know, four or five a game, but he's good. And he's excellent positioning wise, and that's uh, I think a lot of uh, Lamarcus Aldridge's kind of ascension over the last year or so. A lot of that has to do with Robin Lopez kind of helping him being that defensive subsidy. Yeah, and I th- I think that it'll be interesting to see how that happens with Anthony Davis because Omer is that guy for right now, and mm-hmm. hopefully I, for me for me as a basketball fan, I hope he sticks around for a long time because that duo would just be fabulous. But Davis. If he ever wants to make the transition to center, I think that would be the deciding factor on it is can he become that true anchor? Do you want him to be a center? I kind of don't want I, him to be a center. I want him to be a four. That's I want him to be like Kevin Garnett. I want him to be this incredible four that plays the top of the zone and, and, like, and just go nuts as far as, hey, this is not how our game should be. This, this guy is like an alien. I think if you make him a center, it just it kind of makes it boring. Yeah, I think that it, the the way that I phrase it is as a four plus. So his primary position is there, but you can spot him a few minutes if you need to. I think he can already do that. But I, I think you're right. And the other challenge with him is that I think just with the way that most coaches work their systems, his offensive gifts would be really underused with the way most most teams use their centers. Not every team, of course. There are some teams that use their center as well. But his passing and his handling is so unusual for a guy his size that I think that even in even with coaches that are willing to embrace non-traditional roles, centers have a little bit of a, if you want to call it a stigma or whatever, they have an anchor attached to them on the offensive end that he doesn't need. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> that's, that's one way of looking at it. Another guy who's interesting in terms of the positionality and just signed a big contract is Chris Bosh. He's, I think, in some ways, another one of those examples, along with Carmelo, who I'm sure we'll get to, of, the TV deal probably making that deal better than it would be if it was the similar revenue like we have right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The TV deal is going to make it so it's not that bad. But I, another thing is, this guy's really, really good. I mean, that's, and and we're seeing that now. Or I guess people who didn't want to see it before are starting to see it now. But he's really good. I mean, like he he's he's people are talking about who the best power forward in the game is. I think Chris Bosh. And people are looking like I'm crazy. It's just the, the, it's the weird kind of this is this is where we're at in life and society, whatever you want to call it. We say, oh, why do you? Well, guys are just so concerned about their stats and don't care about winning, or they sacrifice and do the right thing, and, that, and you know, basically play like the Spurs. And then they do it, and then you kill them. Like, oh my God, the guy he only averages 12 and seven. Well, how can he be the best star forward? Because like, he did everything that was asked of him to win. And we're seeing now kind of, again, albeit very briefly at the beginning of the season, a return to that, that kind of dominant Chris Bosh. Now the question becomes, as a 12-year vet signed for five years, can he keep it up? Because he's not a bruising uh, – he's not, he's not like a, a guy whose game is going to age well as far as because he's just big, but just always be big. He's a slender guy. He's a finesse guy. So at some point we have to – expect that him he'll slow down and that'll be an issue as far as 
is effectiveness looking down the line. But again, you know, you look at it, the cap is probably going to hit $90 million in two years. Will, will it matter that he's making 23 or 24 or whatever it is in a couple of years? Probably not. They'll be flexible enough. His contract to me, it actually draws a lot of parallels to baseball contracts for guys about his age, which is the idea that they get paid, they get paid a little bit, you can call it too little, but they're basically, they're, they're getting their production now, and then the later years will be a little bit worse, but when you're Miami and you have Dwayne Wade, you're focused more on the next three years. That's your window. Yeah. So if you, if, if to get him for the next three years, you have to pay him for five, you pay him for five. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that you know for them again, it was well they could they didn't have the option to say okay well, let's just start from scratch again uh, because if you do that your 2015 pick I believe is owed to Philadelphia even though it's protected but uh, they they didn't have that option right they wanted to stay good and yeah top ten protected that first round pick so you got Wade you got commitments from McRoberts. And Granger, if you remember, you already know that, or you have a good feeling you're going to get dinged. Go ahead and pay the guy. And again, in two years, most of these guys are going to be off the books, and you'll be able to still build around and go out and find guys. And we already know. And here's here's a big deal. If it were any other superstar, and you could and you'd say, oh yeah, and in a couple of years we can refurbish and reload around them. And maybe he can be the secondary guy to someone else who started him. You might be like, I don't know if that'll work. Look what's happening in LA didn't quite work out. But we know that Bosch can do that because he already he already did it. So in 2016, when the Heat are literally going to have maybe 30% of their cap used, it won't be as big a deal. They, they can bring in enough guys where Bosch is going to be a pain in the ass for any team as a second or third option and be a really, really good team. And at that point in his career, he might be able to slide between the four and the five. And so if you can get a true rim protector five, I think that would be a nice thing. And then you maybe you have him play more like how Miami's done a little bit now, and you have play him as kind of a stretch center later on in his career. You can do some interesting things with him. And he's, as you said, he's willing to play second fiddle or even third fiddle, despite right. having prodigious talent. And that's that's a really special characteristic. I think that is so underappreciated and you know all of the growing pains that Miami had those growing pains never really involved Chris Bosh no no and, and again this is something that we don't I don't think we acknowledge Manu Ginobili I, I got people looking at me crazy when I said Manu Ginobili was probably the second best shooting guard over the last decade behind Kobe Bryant you look like nuts you don't get it because he never rocked the boat he was okay doing what was asked of him. And I predict the same thing is probably going to happen. If the Cavs are successful, the same thing is going to happen to Kevin Love. They're going to say, oh, you know, of course, he put up stats on a bad team. When he went to a winner, he's only doing 15 points or whatever he's going to average. Kyrie Irving is another one, although he's probably less likely. So he's probably, he's more likely, yeah, I think, to have his stats than, than Kevin Love is. Um, but, you know, there's a whole bunch of people in this league who, who literally did the right thing and get, you get no credit for it. Which is why, and that's why when people are like, well, why, why does, you know, why does someone shoot every time he does it? Because that's what gets you paid in accolades. 
Yeah, here here's a tough question. I've been thinking about this. I've I haven't ever mentioned this on the podcast, but I've told people privately. If two years from now Stephen Curry tells the Warriors that he's going to leave and go to Cleveland, would a Kyrie for Stephen Curry trade be possible that season? Like a sign and trade, you mean? Well, no, I I think you would do it beforehand. You do it at the like around the deadline of the year before. Uh, or it's a signing trade, yeah, I guess. Yeah, off the top of my head, I don't, I don't think it would be possible without more pieces for a regular trade for a signing trade. Would it happen? I think if you're the Warriors, the only reason you would ever entertain trading him is if there's a real threat that he could end up somewhere else, right? So for Cleveland, I'm going to assume that LeBron is at some point going to sign. Maybe he won't sign more than a one-year deal. But if Kevin Love resigns next summer, which you expect him to do, if LeBron resigns summer 2016, which you expect him to do, we already know that Verjao has added a couple of years to his deal. I mean, I guess because they still have cap space, they might. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, that's what makes it so hard. Is every time like my gut is like, oh well, the only way they would do that is if they knew he'd leave, but you'd have to have like a viable place where he'd go with the cap space to sign him. But how would they do that without this and that? And then I'm like, wait a second, the Cavs will be like $90 million. Maybe maybe they will. Maybe people imagine that the Cavs are going to have LeBron and Kevin Love and Kyrie O on the contract and still have enough money to pay Steph Curry. Yeah, what, and the reason why I think the Warriors would have would be interested theoretically in the Kyrie part of it is that if Curry can say, I can leave and you'll get nothing, Kyrie is a whole hell of a lot better than nothing, and Cleveland would have the leverage that, because Kyrie's going to be under contract, and as we said, the cap's going to explode, that other teams would be killing themselves to get him. Right. So no, they could say, no, we'll, we'll give him away for like three first-round picks, and then we'll use that money to get Curry. Absolutely. You know, if, if you know that Curry, that the whole thing lies in if you know Curry's going to leave, because I don't think he would leave to go to whatever the bad team du jour is going to be then. Let's say it's Brooklyn or, you know, or, or wherever. You know, he's not going to leave to go somewhere bad. He's going to leave to go somewhere good. And under normal circumstances, you look at it and say, oh, you want to go to Cleveland? They can't afford to pay you. They don't have the cap space to do it. So then you, you, you call it bluff. The problem is, again, with an exploding cap, almost everybody's going to have the cap space to do it. So if you, if you feel like he's really out the door and, why wouldn't he be if he said that to you? Because obviously the Golden State, you should be willing to pay him the sun, moon, and the stars. If he's out the door, then of course you got you say give me Kyrie. You know, it's not it's a no brainer. It's getting an all star for for an all star. And the other team that I think benefits a lot from the exploding cap, I actually wrote on this a couple weeks ago, is New Orleans because they're the only team that has a star that they can say, he's going to be here. We're not moving him. He's going to be here. Because, well, LeBron, I think you have that functional argument because he'll just say, I'm not leaving. He's the only guy that's under team control for that entire time that is already at that level. You know what? Everyone keeps saying nobody's ever turned down the max deal, but it's going to happen one of these days. And I'm telling you, it's going to happen. And and it wouldn't surprise me if Anthony Davis, if, if nothing changes in New Orleans, which could possibly happen, no fault of their own, just because of the Western Conference so tough, but it could happen that they just never get over the hump. He might hit that Kevin Love, like, what? I'm not going to spend my career here being on national TV a couple of times a year nobody knowing about me. And people think I'm not that good because if I was, our team would be in the playoffs now. I want to go win. 
I don't know if it's going to be him, but someone is going to make that leap someday. Do you know what would really push it with him is if they change, like expand or eliminate the max contract. I think if that if that move happened, it would be at almost exactly the right time for him to go. Not only can I go somewhere better, but I can get paid a ridiculous amount of money to do it. You're telling me. Uh, I yeah, mean, I, if, if, they, if they get rid of the max contract, then that's when New Orleans has to pay you fifteen million dollars. I mean, he's he's there. It's the same thing that I'm saying with Oklahoma City and Durant. It's like you have to understand that these guys are your the reason that you are relevant. And the second they leave, it's hard. If Durant leaves, if Westbrook leaves, that team's done. If Davis leaves, New Orleans is done. And that's to me, that's also a criticism. Going back to our friend Ethan Sherwood Strauss of having a lot of teams in smaller markets is that it's going to be hard for those teams to get another star unless they hit the jackpot again. I, I don't, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I, I, I think this is a fairly recent phenomenon. I, I just think, I think players want to go where they have a chance to get paid and win. Those are the two most important things, to be honest, to get paid and win. And, and everything else, do they have an influence? Yes, they do. But it's nowhere near as great as people make it out to be. New York is the greatest city on earth. I'm from New York. Nobody wants to go play for the Knicks. Be honest. Nobody wants to go play for the Knicks. It has everything to do with all the other issues, not to mention they haven't really been winning. You know, the Lakers, the most storied franchise in one of the most glamorous cities in the world, with great weather year-round, swing and a miss this offseason. Who would have thought that they would lose the biggest free agent and then a year later would not be able to get anybody to come? I mean, Ed Davis for minimum. I mean, that's loud and clear that guys want to go. Obviously, everybody wants to get paid. That's universal. But they want to go where they feel like they have a chance of winning. That's why a Mike Miller can shut down several deals and go to Cleveland. I'm not saying Mike Miller is the, the greatest free agent catch in the world, but it speaks a lot. Mike Miller's gone anywhere. A shooter is caliber. He chose to go to Cleveland. Kevin Love chose to allow a deal to be made with him to go to Cleveland. And now, obviously, how does that happen? That happens because once upon a time, Cleveland won the jackpot and got LeBron. And then once upon a time after that, they won the jackpot and they got Kyrie Irving. And then once upon a time after that, they won the jackpot and got Anthony Bennett and, and Andrew Wiggins. And then they were able to trade two of those jackpots for Kevin Love. So, yes, they got that. some of those assets with there because tanking, because of the redistribution of wealth, so to speak. But at the end of the day, those things happen because guys wanted to go somewhere where they felt like they had a good chance of winning. And if you manage your team correctly, if you manage it smartly, you have a chance at those players, right? If you don't, it's easy to blame. Oh, it's because they're playing West Bumble crap, you know, Louisiana or Tennessee or Arkansas. You know, that's why, oh, if I, it's not fair. You know, you know I, I just don't, you know, I see what, you know, even point, a lot of it has to do also with money. Now, is it true that I'd rather have a franchise in Seattle than Oklahoma City? Absolutely. Just from, from a financial standpoint for the league as a whole. But from a free agency standpoint, I just don't think it's as big a deal as people make it up. Yeah, I, I think that. The precedent is with you right now. I have an instinct that it's going to change quickly. And the other part of it, as you brought up, is that those teams are very poorly run right now. I mean, you're not dealing with 
what I think is going to happen is that the combination of the exploding cap and basically all these great young players hitting free agency because the extension system is broken, I think that you're going to see guys come together in a place like that. So you're not going to say, hey, you need to come and play with Kobe by yourself. It's going to be you and a friend can come and be the next two guys on the Lakers. And that's how they're going to get their guys. And that's why I thought the Carmelo signing was so misguided. Because if you're trying to tell somebody, you're trying to pitch that guy in Melo, it's a lot harder than saying you and whoever you want. That's an easier selling pitch because they can choose whoever they want. That's what Miami did. Miami said, hey, whoever you guys want, let's do it. But but the bird in the hand is what's shooting the bush. It's a lot easier to say, we already have a star. You come here and you make us complete as opposed to, Okay, I think we can. Well, who do you want? All right, yeah, I think we can get. It's it's, it's kind of like when you're trying to get two people to set up a time for something. Like, when are you available? I'm available whenever you're available. Okay, let me check when he's available. So many things. You're introducing more moving parts. It's hard enough to get a star. You're saying I can get two stars at the same time. That's you're really risking it. What Miami did is really unprecedented as far as being able to get two free agents and get and, and make a, and keep a third. And I I don't know if it's that easy. But what the what the Lakers went wrong was it wasn't if Kobe was five years younger, I don't think it'd be an issue. The problem is Kobe's a hundred years old coming off of a devastating injury and he's making, you know, a significant amount of the cap so that, hey, yeah, you can come here and team on Kobe, oh by the way, we won't have anything else for supporting cash other than minimum deals and the mini mid level. That's not a compelling sales pitch to a, a player that wants to win. If you're telling me, hey, we already got Melo, you can come here, we've got this other thing coming, we'll be able to find this guy, we've got these other guys who are growing, you know, these other young players on our roster will be great role players. That's more compelling. I'm not saying it's the best pitch in the world, but it's more compelling. And so when you're looking at free agents, I think that's what they're looking for. They want to know that there's a plan. They want to know how you're going to execute that plan. And if Part of your plan is, and then something happens, and so-and-so joins us as well, that's not as compelling a sell as, okay, we only got one star. You come here, and then we're going to add some other pieces like this. So then for you, how do you see the Lakers thing? Do you basically think that it's going gonna, it's gonna to take until after Kobe retires for them to really get the next group there? Yeah. The moment he signed that deal, it was a wrap. You can look at my my uh, you can look at my free agent ranking or big board from September 2013, maybe October 2013. I had Kobe at like 15 mil, not because that's what he's worth, but it's like if you want to keep this thing going, you got to do what Timmy did, what KG did, what Dirk did this summer. You got to do it. That's how you keep it going. That's how you keep winning. That's how you get to be younger. That's how you can stay relevant. That's how you get your sixth ring. That's how we can usher in a new era. The moment you say, I got to be the highest paid player in the league because that's what I'm worth and new owners and you want to make this a big CBA theoretical argument, bravo, you win that one, but you will never win another championship. Not there, not anywhere else. Because no one's trading for $23.5 million Kobe Bryant with, the, <laughs> with another $25 million coming. It's, it's insane. You, there's no way you can structure a deal to get at that guy and still be good if you're a team, if you're another team. If you're the Lakers, nobody wants to go there because they don't know the deal. He wants to shoot 27 times and get his record, and and that's it. 
And not that there's anything wrong with that. If that's what you want, I want to get paid like I'm, I'm the best player in the league, and I want to be the all-time scoring record leader. There's nothing wrong with him wanting that. There's nothing wrong with the Lakers wanting him there. You know, there's nothing wrong with say, hey, we're paying him $48 million because he sells jerseys and sells tickets and keeps us on national TV and keeps us in the national conversation, even though we're terrible. If that's yeah, what you want to do, that's fine. But you can't turn around and say, oh, we want to win championships in the next two years. Like, no, that's, that's, bye bye, that's, that's done. The moment you, you push that piece of paper across and he took out the pen and wrote K O D, you know, it was a wrap. You basically signed a death certificate on competing at all. I think that's a great point, and I agree with you that owning it is is really the, the frustration that I have with it, because you have the people who say, oh, you know, you can't leave that kind of money on the table. It's like, yeah, you can. I, I will never fault him for doing it. He can do it if he wants to, Right. but the the side effect of that is you're ending your career with five rings unless you want to do what Gary Payton and Carl Malone did, and they didn't even get that ring. <laughs> well, Gary, Gary Payton did it in Miami. He, oh, he yeah, he did yeah. in Miami. He, yeah. uh, that was after the Lakers, right? Yeah, it was way after. It was, I think it was the last year. But, but yes, that's, that's, that's the deal with the devil that you make. It's like, it's like every cheap Hollywood movie from the 70s and 80s. devil comes out and says, oh, oh man, I want to be the richest man on earth. Sure. But you'll be blind. You know, there's always like a, a dark side to the deal. This is a dark side to his deal. And you got to live with that. And then, like you said, may, and, and who knows? Maybe he stays healthy over the next two years. And then maybe at the end of that contract, he's like, okay, I got, I made my 48 mil. I broke the, uh, broke the record. Now I'm willing to be seeing Daddy 2.0 or 3.0 on this team. Or, you know, now I'm willing to be the superstar who is going to play the role player role for someone else. Maybe that's going to happen in two years if he's healthy. Or maybe he's going to go crazy before Christmas and ask to get traded. I don't know. To me, that was the other real bombshell in your colleague Henry Abbott's piece on Kobe and the Lakers is that their TV deal rises and falls with their ratings. And I think that that helped explain to me why they were so willing to do that. Because if your goal is your TV deal and your profits, then Kobe Bryant's going to give you reliable ratings, especially in Southern California. So that helped explain it to me for a reason other than loyalty, which I always kind of thought there had to be something else. Yes or no. I mean, I just feel like the Lakers. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe 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 I'm Pollyannic on that. But I just feel like the Lakers will always. They may not get the highest popular, but they're always going to get ratings because they're the Lakers. It's like the Yankees. It's like the Cowboys. Them being a train wreck makes it even more of a of a you know of a reason to watch. And I just don't know. My thing is, you look at the Lakers' history. They've done it so many times. They can never scare their fans away. They couldn't scare their fans away when when Magic got HIV. They couldn't scare their fans away when Shaq was run out of town. When Kobe had a rape. Like they don't go away. They don't go away, no matter how bad the team is. I, I guess in the short run, yes. You know, there's a difference between getting a thirty million dollar check from Time Warner and maybe a twenty or fifteen million dollar check. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty to change it change in the long run if that's if I'm sacrificing fifteen mil in cash coming in, but I'm rebuilding a lot quicker and in a lot more sane fashion, it's worth it, or maybe not uh, it's not my money you know and it's, it's always different you know but but if you're a fan here's my point if you're a fan, the bus's checkbook should not be 
like you're concerned. That's why I never get fans like, oh, he sells so many tickets a month. Why do you care? What does it matter to you whether your team is popular or not or whether, whether your owners are making bank or not? You care about winning a championship. Right now, you can say, I understand why they did it, but you can't use that as your, your main argument. Much like if you're a Thunder fan, you can say, I understand why they didn't want to pay James Harden, but you can't be like, oh, yeah, no, this is so much better for us. But no, it's not. To me, if you're, a, if you're a fan, what you should care about in ownership is their willingness to pay the luxury tax if your team is good. That is what is most important, and I think that's going to come to a head when, with the Warriors next season, is that that is a real differentiator. It's not that you have to pay it every year, because oftentimes that facilitates stupid spending like what we saw with the Nets. But the willingness to do it when you're good, I think, is what separates the Spurs and Miami until they cut Mike Miller, which I think is a part of the story, and Dan Gilbert, incidentally, to somebody like the Oklahoma City ownership and possibly the Warriors will have to see. Yeah, you know, again, it's, it's, it'll be interesting with the exploding cap. I think the Warriors are going to – they pay the tax next year. It'll be so – I mean, it won't be crazy. They won't be – I don't think they'll be above the threshold, to be honest, above the uh, the apron. I think I think they'll be they'll be able to retain uh, non luxury tax paying mechanisms like the full mid level exception and signing trades and all that and dip into a tax a little bit and then the next year there won't be a tax. This cap is going to change so many things. I I'm not ashamed to say I'm not smart enough right now to know what our league is going to look like in two years because. At first blush, it just seems like everyone's going to have cap space. Everyone's going to be under the tax. And there's going to be a lot of crazy deals that are flying around. There are going to be some unbelievably terrible contracts. But I think the the thing that makes me so intrigued by the Warriors is that they have Draymond Green, who's going to get a big pay bump, assuming they're willing to pay him. But that will push them into the tax. And the, what makes this different than when they dumped Charles Jenkins and Tyler a couple of years ago, and they've done some other things like that, is there will not be a way for that Warriors team, if they keep Draymond, to get under the luxury tax without giving up somebody who can play basketball. And that's why it'll show their choice. And so if they pay it, that doesn't mean they will always do it, but it at least shows that they're willing to do it. If they don't, then to me that means they won't. Right. If, if they're not willing to do it for one year, then then to me, like that's a wrap. Then but I don't think then if I don't think I don't think there are many teams that are, that take that hard line of stance towards luxury tax. I think most teams are willing a to pay it for for a team that has a legitimate chance of winning, and b especially if you tell me, oh, this is just a temporary thing. We're not going. We're not on the road to luxury tax hell. Like we're not going to Brooklyn. So even the Pacers, as hard line as they. They were, or well, I mean, maybe not. They should. They had it. Let's say their team hadn't gone through the issues they went through last year. Let's say they stayed dominant all the way through, and still had the same ending loss in the conference finals. I don't think they would have hesitated to pay everybody to stay, knowing that the cap is going to explode and everything. They wouldn't have hesitated to pay a luxury tax for this year or next year or what have you. Uh, I, I, I hope you're right. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, 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 it's so. It's, I mean, it's just so short. Like, if you're that short-sighted, I don't know. I don't think you'll win, anyway. And and you know, again, the Thunder might be another example. I don't know. I don't know. 
Yeah, and, and and the other part of it is that I think players now, especially with the new TV deal, are going to be more aware that the owners are going to be making money on their team. So that sympathy of, oh, you know, we can't do this because, we, you know, it's it's hard, we're hemorrhaging money, we're in a small market and all that. I don't think Kevin Durant will be sitting there and go, oh, okay, that's a fair reason for you guys to not pay the luxury tax. He'll be sitting there and go, oh, okay, you know, like that doesn't necessarily mean that that'll turn him off and he'll he'll definitely go somewhere else. But I don't think that there's going to be any naivete from the the way the players think about owners. Uh, yeah, but I think you still got to remember being a luxury taxpayer means more than just paying a luxury tax. It also means it takes away from our ability to make our team better. And I think yep. that's that's still a, a, that's a very compelling argument because as an owner, you can say, look, I got no problem spending. But if I give you this money now, I can't get you better teammates. We can't sign and trade for anybody. Our mid-level exception is going to be smaller. We're going to have to rely more heavily on minimum deals. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, we live in Oklahoma City. And see, now there is when the locale makes a difference. If the money's even, guys want to go where they want to win. But once it's like, oh, yeah, come to Oklahoma City, we'll have a chance to oh, by the way, we can't pay you anything. Now you got an issue. Now it's like, well, why am I going? Like when the Heat are paying me, they're offering four million, or whoever, or Chicago is offering me five million. That, that's when it starts to make a difference, you know. It's, yeah. You know, same thing. I think you can look at Pau Gasol this summer, and, and I, I'm not saying that this is why or this wasn't why, but just as an example, Pau Gasol could have gone to Oklahoma City, except all they could offer was the mid-level exception, whereas Chicago offer them to eight figures a year. That's a big that's a big difference because it's like okay I can win here I can win there but I'm getting paid twice as much here. Oh by the way it's also in the Eastern Conference where everything is easier. So you see like that decision for him to go to Chicago, so many layers. But an easy and lazy way to say, Oh of course I'm going to see we're a small market. Like it's so easy to blind being in a small market. Yeah, and and I think that what's so fun about thinking about free agency, as you said, we're not at the point yet where we can visualize the whole thing, though, is that we're going to see a lot of guys have some really good choices. It's not going to be, oh, there's only one team offering me the max, so I'm going to go there. But the combination of these guys hitting unrestricted free agency and teams just having hilarious amounts of money is that we're going to see some really hard decisions. Like Kevin Durant, let's say, he's going to have a lot of different choices. So he's not going to be sitting there going, oh, I have to choose between a Cleveland team like LeBron did where nobody seems willing to come here or Miami. He's going to have five or six options that all have their own positives and negatives. And we will learn a lot about what is important to them because they will have good choices as opposed to choices that have strong positives and strong negatives. Yes. <laughs> I get, sometimes you make these points where I'm like, oh, man, this why am I on this podcast, man? He's making a point for me. <laughs> uh, so we'll move on. I wanted there are a couple more guys that for the for the test. The ones that I'm really interested in are some of the guys who just signed. So we can do them a little bit faster. Right. What do you think about what do you think about Ricky Rubio's deal? Uh, it was a little bit richer than what I I would have done. I think I was at the ten million dollar range, maybe eleven with incentives. They went above that, but again. He does a lot of things at an elite. He does some things at an elite level, and they are things that are fairly rare at that position. And again, with the exploding cap, blah blah blah, it's not going to be that bad of a deal. 
His defense is so underrated. I think yeah. he's a very solid defender, and he's an unbelievable passer. Yeah. And I think that you can, I think that you can do a lot. It's kind of in a way, it's it's kind of like the opposite of Nikola Pekovic. It's like he does what you need at his position the most, and he has some flaws, but at least at least he can run an offense. Yeah, absolutely. Even and I think I think he'll eventually be able to shoot at least better than now. I mean, I've I've compared him to Jason Kidd forever. And I think that's a little bit not like he's oh he's that good now, but I think that he could have that broad an arc eventually. Yeah, that, that's always been my my comp for him was Jason Kidd, and and even when I wrote last year about his shooting woes and I uh, did the kid comparison, the main difference was that Kidd was never bad at making layups, but he's <laughs> believe it or not, Rubio's ahead of Kidd as far as developing an outside jumper. He's ahead of yep. uh, as far as experience. Years in the league, years of service in the league, he's had a kid. But yeah, you're paying him basically for being elite at two things that are very important at that position. Another guy that I think is tough to figure out is Fareed. I actually think that he's a very good player, but like Pekovic, he's a very good player at things that aren't necessarily required for a good basketball team. And things that traditionally you can get for cheap, to be honest. I mean, that's the thing. Not, not to say that. Again, that go, we go back to reasonable facsimile. Is there anyone who plays with as much energy as Fareed? No. He's probably number one when it comes to that. But do I need that much energy? Can I not get a little bit less and save a lot more money? And, and then also, going back to the Gerald Green thing, unpredictability. When I can't count on you, and defensively, you really can't count on him. And even offensively, if it's not like, straightforward things. He's not he's not he's not executing very complex plays. So when you have those two things going against you, you ask yourself, well what am I paying for here? Because there's a energy rebounder in every draft. There are a bunch of them in the D League. Are they again, are they as athletic as sweet? No. Are they as consistently high energy as sweet? No. But they're there and would you not be better off using some of that money to pay for something that you need that's more important? But again, I would go back to, oh, but the cap's going to explode, so it doesn't matter. Oh, okay. If you, were, if you were a GM right now and they were both unrestricted free agents, would you give Fareed significantly more than Paul Millsap? No. no. I no. think I'd give Millsap more money. Yeah, I'd give Millsap more money, yeah. I, I mean, that's that's the crazy part. Obviously, Millsap signed, it seems like he signed a below market value because of all that weird stuff with his year, but Paul Millsap is, is a really good basketball player, and it's not like yeah. he's old or anything like that, and he's going to be available this summer. We know that. He's going to be around. Um, yeah. other, another guy who signed an extension that I didn't like, but a lot of other people did, is Nikola Vucevic. What do you think about, what do you think about him? Another not really rim protector, very good basketball player. Uh, you know, I like Vucevic, and I like his deal. And I, I like him, I don't know, it's weird. I think he's a really, really underrated pick-and-roll player. He's very good at the pick-and-roll. And his mid-range jumper is developing, and he's probably one of the top three or four rebounders on either end. And then from a defensive standpoint, he's, he's no, you know, he's no Patrick Ewing or anything, but at least rotation-wise and being in the right place, he can do that. And when you look at what Marcin Gortat and Pekovic is doing, the problem is at starting center, this is the going rate. 
for starting centers that can just walk, walk and chew gum. So the question is, can you find a reasonable facsimile for what he does at center? And the answer is no. So you got to pay him and the going rate. And they're not coming into the league either. I mean, hopefully Embiid works out, but you're not seeing like league average starting centers. You're not seeing them pop into the league very much anymore. Yeah, no, and and not anymore. It's always been that way, right? That's why but people draft like seven footers, you know, at the top of the draft. Like, why would they take him? You know, because these things don't grow on trees. These guys don't grow on trees. On that, not growing on trees. Have you been encouraged by what we've seen from Alex Len so far? Yeah, uh, I don't think he's in the the Ashik Hibbert Bogut conversation, but he's he's ahead of Vucevic. I think he's gonna be ahead of Vucevic. Not as good a rebounder, but very active and so long, and probably he's starting ahead of the curve, shooting the ball. Even though he hasn't shot well so far in his career, he's got the touch to be a better shooter. I thought he did a good job on Tim Duncan the other night just being long and keeping verticality. But he's got a long way to go. He's got to get stronger. I think he needs to do a better job of recognizing what are good shots, what aren't good shots for him, and continue kind of learning the defensive schemes and, and, and rotations and stuff like that. And offensively, I watched a fair amount of Alex Lynn at Maryland because I was living in D.C. at the time, and – I've been shocked by, I think it's the largest discrepancy between guard talent for a big man at, from the college level to the pros that I've ever seen in my life. Because he went from having nobody who knew what to do with him and getting in the ball to probably the best overall passing guard trio in the league. Yeah, I mean, that's, the, the whole thing is, <laughs> can you keep those guys happy? And so far you can because you're playing them all. But there, you reach a point where uh, it gets harder because either you can't play them all at the same time or, you know, it gets harder. You know, sometimes guys get tired of not having the ball in their handle. But so far, so good. And they're running the three-guard lineups. And I think during the regular season, they'll be able to get away with that a lot because a lot of teams, it's so hard to game plan during the regular season because you have another – yeah, you're coming out of one game. You got another game after that. You really don't have much time, so it's easy for people who play unconventionally to take advantage of uh, basically the status quo. When you get to the playoffs, if they make the playoffs, and guys have a chance to sit down and watch and really think things through, then it gets harder to get away with gimmicks like that uh, because they'll adjust and they'll they'll exploit your weakness. But for the Suns, again. They're probably not good enough to make the playoffs because the teams in the West are so tough. So, you know, they'll get away with that three-guard lineup, and, and those guys will be happy. The unhappiness will come from players who were getting minutes at the two last year that are not going to see a lot of those minutes anymore. You know, because Isaiah Thomas is taking a lot of those backup shooting guard minutes. And obviously Bledsoe is taking them under the starting two-guard minutes because he wasn't – he missed a lot of last year. So you're saying when you talk about P.J. Tucker, Marcus Morris, Gerald Green, and then to a lesser extent T.J. Ward, and then even Anthony Pollard could throw in there because he's not really a four. Uh, he doesn't rebound like a four. And he doesn't play back to the back there. Those guys are all fighting for minutes on the wing because the two guard minutes are pretty much spoken for. 
then that gets interesting. Because right now, P.J. Tucker is suspended for that uh, DUI. But when he gets back, which I believe he should be back uh, this week. Yeah, I think end of this week. Yeah, when that happens. Five ga- was it five games? I think it was three games. Okay, so you should be back soon then. Yeah, so which would mean you'd be back for Tuesday's game against the Lakers. Once he gets back, he's the best wing defender. So somebody's going to play a lot less. Is that somebody going to be happy with playing a lot less? Probably not. So I would stay tuned to that. That's a good point. I had a question for you. When teams play Phoenix on a back-to-back on either end, where are they usually playing their other game? Oof. You know, it's funny. We used to maybe like this stuff I used to pay attention to when I worked for the team, and now I don't. But I remember like four or five years ago, they used to come from L.A. And so our advanced scout, one of our one of our assistant coaches, also advanced scout, he loved that because he, he could fly to L.A. and like fly back, not miss any time with the team. Like so, if we're in town practicing today, after practice he can go get on a plane, go watch the next team play against the Lakers or the Clippers, and then come back tomorrow morning and not not having missed any practices and have like the scouting report done for the team that's coming later that week. And then like. Four years ago, I want to say. No, yeah, was it four years ago? They switched up and they made, it was four years ago. They switched up and we became the stop before they go to L.A. And so they usually come now from Denver, from Utah, or somewhere like that. But, you know, obviously because the schedule is so complex, it, it, it could be from anywhere. But, yeah, there was, there was a point in time when most of the time they were coming from L.A. to us. That's interesting that they changed it. I was thinking, yeah, whoever whoever is on the – especially on on the trail end of Denver, if they're playing on a back-to-back, would just have a huge advantage. Because those well, guys I mean, that's are like, That's like people in the uh, – well, yes, that would happen a lot. That would happen a lot. Teams would come playing – after playing the Nuggets to play us, and we we just kick them up and down, kick them up and down the floor. The same thing, I think, the Nuggets, a couple of times that happened to them. They'd come to us, and they'd – they just, uh, even though they should be used to the altitude in Denver and come down here and feel more energetic, but it just doesn't work out like that. Well, that's like I'm sure the Knicks lobby to try to have lots of teams have off days the night before they play them because I think that's a competitive advantage for them. Well, that's, now you get into the whole Sunday matinee game in Toronto that's going to play advantage. <laughs> yeah. But so before before we head out, I, there were a couple guys that the other ones, and again, this is going to hit on the the cap issue that we've talked about. I'm trying to figure out what the market is going to be for them, and the guy I want to start with is DeAndre. Is he a max guy? What is he? Man, he might be. He might be because again, we're talking about the going the going rate for centers. Like if you look at Gortat, Pekovic, and now Vucevic's deal, that's that's what a starting center is. And depending on how DeAndre progresses, there's two things. Depending on how he progresses, because he took a huge leap last year as far as becoming a better defensive anchor. Can he continue in that progression and be mentioned in that upper echelon of guys? I think he can. I think he can. That's one thing. The other thing is, if you're the Clippers, you absolutely cannot afford to lose him, right? That's probably the biggest thing that's working in this state. He may not even have to improve. He could just be status quo. But if you're the Clippers, you can't lose him. What, what's the other option? He, he is your defensive anchor. You literally don't have another defensive big on the roster. So and they wouldn't him. have cap flexibility, too, because they're paying Blake and CP3 yeah. so much money that they wouldn't. It's what happened to the Warriors with Bogut to a degree, is that 
they they could they could not replace him even if that player existed and they yes. don't. Yes, because once once he's out the door, you don't have you can't go out and get like a, a slightly cheaper version. Right. You can't say, Oh, we'll just go out and get another twelve million dollar center. No, you don't have the cap the cap room to do that next year. So they have to pay him. They have to pay him for that reason. And then also because, hey man, like he, maybe he's worth it. These guys don't we just said these guys don't go on treat. You know, a more interesting the more interesting question for me is not DeAndre, is what about a guy like Brooke Lopez? Can he opt out? Should he opt out? What about Roy Hibbert? Can he opt oh, out? Should God. he opt out? Those guys are just crazy. I mean, and it's it's also interesting because they're both the type of guys that GMs would just be sitting there terrified to sign them to a big deal because you have with Lopez, I think you know what you're getting when he's healthy, but you have no idea if he's going to be healthy. And with Hibbert, he has some things that he provides, but I mean, I I would be so scared to give him big money. I would yeah. feel more comfortable with DeAndre because at least you know what DeAndre is oh, no. giving you. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, I think I'd be more comfortable with DeAndre because I think also DeAndre is more personal. I think Hibbert is an elite defensive anchor if you design your whole defense around him not moving, which is what the Pacers basically have done. DeAndre DJ gives you a lot more flexibility in terms of different things you can do. Um, and and, and I, I'm the type of guy that values that flexibility defensively. I, I think it's good to be able to have your guys guard different types of things because, again, when you get to the playoffs, if you're just stagnant in the only one way, then you get exploited. But, again, it goes back to their incumbent teams. If you're the Pacers, you let them walk, who are you replacing with? Who's out there who's available? You can get them. You can lure to Indiana for – depending on looking at the cap sheet with Paul George making what he makes, probably isn't going to be a, a lot of money. Hold on, I got them right up here. No, I take that back. They've got, they've got some cash. And the other thing about DeAndre that I think helps the Clippers a lot is that since he's 26 right now, he'll be 27 when he's a free agent, you're not having to pay for those post post prime years when I think DeAndre is going to fall off a cliff because he's, his athleticism is so pivotal to his game. You don't have to pay for him at 35. You're not, you don't yeah. have to worry about that. This isn't baseball where you're giving a guy a 10-year contract and you know he's going to be garbage for the last three. The limitation there allows the team to do what the, what the Miami did with Chris Bosh, and you're not paying for the trough years. You're paying for the years before that. Yeah, you've got, you got two, two more contracts in him. You've got this next contract, which he's going to be earning the whole way through. And then the next contract after that is where you see him decline. But again, you know, yes, his athleticism is what makes him extraordinary. He's still seven feet, seven one with long arms. He's, that part won't go away. And while he won't be able to make those amazing athletic plays, he can still clog up the lane. He can still be that uh, intimidator. And he can still contest, and he can do a lot of things that he does right now without being an incredible athlete, unless obviously barring injury issues or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you could use Tyson Chandler as an example of a be- kind of a best yeah. case scenario for DeAndre yeah. of how how an athletic guy with physical with physical gifts other than athleticism can age. Yeah, that's that's a great great comp. The other guys that I was interested in, what you think the market is, Reggie Jackson. Oh, his market just went up. <laughs> Boy, if there's anyone who's rubbing their hands, hey, Russ is going to be out the next month or so. It's Reggie Jackson. Jeez. 
I'm not a believer. I, I know this is unpopular. I think he's a very good scorer. I think he's a lovely first guard to have off your bench. Uh, he's not a great three-point shooter. And defensively, he's, you know, you know he, he's had his issues. So uh, I'm, I don't, I don't know if I'd bring the bank on, but I could see someone. The other thing, the other funny thing about being a point guard is we're reaching that point where almost everybody has a point guard. Then unless you're a clear upgrade, again, is it worth it? Or do I already have the reasonable tax in them? So, you know, who who out there does not have a point guard? The Lakers? Okay. They may pay him. So I think who else is point guard was out there? The Kings? I think he needs I think he needs to sell himself as a two. I think that's how he does it. He says, I'm your scorer, I'm that guy. I'm like what Monte Ellis has somehow done. I think now, Monte Ellis has somehow convinced people that he's a two guard when he's really a one guard who shouldn't run an offense. <laughs> I think Monte is a two, absolutely. Interesting. I, I just, yeah, you know, Monte, Monte, Monte is, Monte is like the, the, like Ben Gordon and all those guys. I think they're just Jamal Crawford. All these guys, J.R. Smith, they're all the same guy. I'm an incredible scorer, but you can't trust me to do anything other than score the ball. So put me as your first guard off the bench. I'll play either position you need, and I will get you buckets. And just let me go unchained. And I think every team needs that, a tough basket maker. All those guys are. But I, I don't know. When you, when you start them off starting them, that's when you start seeing a lot of issues because they don't defend or they don't shoot three points. They all, each all have their thing. They're not efficient with their touches. You know, They can flourish in that backup guard, that any microwave doctor role. That's what they're there for. And I think that's over Jackson is. That's that, I think that's I think that's fair. I always wanted Monte to play the one starting on a team with LeBron. But I just think that just would have been chaos because you would have had just ridiculous open court players and all that kind of stuff. But there's only one LeBron, and yeah. Monte was never willing to take that kind of a pay cut, so he became what he is. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, the last extension guy close to my heart is Draymond Green. I have had a mm. lot of trouble figuring out where things are with him. I'll I'll tell you mine at the outset. I I think right now somebody would give him 7 to 8, but I it would only be one or two teams and I wouldn't be surprised if that shoots up this year. I think 7 to 8 is 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 a reasonable expectation, but let me say this, and I know this is probably going to be the most unpopular opinion on what I'm assuming you probably have a lot of Golden State Warrior fans who listen to your podcast. There's a there's a Draymond Green in every draft. I'm trying to think. I want to get this Daryl Morey quote right. It's something along the lines of like, the good teams have a fill in the blank. So let's use Draymond Green for example. The good teams have Draymond Green. The great teams are the ones that can find him before he gets paid. Right? That that's that's the value there. The value is that's a great how point. I, how do I find Draymond Green and get him? And then when it's when he's too expensive, you let him go and go find the next one. Because those guys are everywhere. Those guys are everywhere. And it's just the, the right, finding the right guy, put him in the right situation. So you tell me a six seven guy who rebounds and has good IQ and plays hard and is a tough-nosed defender, that college basketball is full of those guys, man. You just got to find the right one. You got to find who that guy is, develop him, use him, and when he gets too expensive, you let him go. 
I think it's the reasonable facsimile argument all over again. I think that Draymond is a great example of what he does, but I think that you're right that an 80% of Draymond Green is pretty available. And does that 20% matter? Because Draymond, Draymond is best when he's your fourth or fifth best player on your team, or or even deeper if you can get him on your bench. So I, what I hope for him is that he can get that kind of money, but do it on it as the last piece on a team that is already good, because that would be so much better for him. Because if he gets to a situation like what happened to Trevor Reza when he went to the Rockets the first time, yep. Yep. that was just a disaster. You know that yep. that didn't work out well for anybody except that Trevor got that money and. Yep. I don't know. I, I, I'm, always, I'm always happy when a guy gets that money, but that didn't help his future. But it, see, like people think I, I just have it in for Kobe, but this will apply to many people. At some point, you have to decide whether I want to take less and be in a situation that's more advantageous to my win percentage or you know, my experience and all that, or do I want to make more? If I'm Draymond Green, this deal, he absolutely has to make money. He absolutely can't give a break. You know why? Because he doesn't have a hundred gajillion dollars in the bank from all the other deals he made. He doesn't have endorsement deals left and right. He doesn't have. This is he's literally been living like an NBA pauper. Obviously, by regular standards, he's a very wealthy man. But by the standards of the National Basketball Association, he is a poor man. He is he is the bottom ten percent in pay. So. This deal that he signs, it's got to be – he's got – and he, it gets no higher. He's as high a commodity as it gets. So you, if you're a dream one, you got to go after as much money as you can. And just understand, like, you're going to look back and go, man, I, I miss those days when I played with guys that I liked and I liked my coach and I liked the city and we were winning games and now I'm stuck in, you know – Louisville, Kentucky for the Kentucky Colonels. I'm, I don't want to name a team and have people get all annoyed, but you're, you're stuck in some locale where you never win and you got all your money, but nobody gives a damn about you. I mean, I'm trying to think of who the guy is. It? The, the team that's sticking in my head is the Utah Jazz. <laughs> I love that team, though, and I love and I, I, I love so many things about the Utah Jazz, but I feel like they're a team. I, incidentally, if it weren't for the way that Maury feels about guys like Draymond Green, I think the Rockets make a ton of sense for him. He'd be a great fit as their if four if he can if they can drill a, a reliable corner three into him. Yes, and I think they can. I think uh, yeah. his three point shooting is, is not as far gone as people make it out to be. So I want to end this with the guy that I feel like we have to end this with, and that's Nene. Hmm. I don't the, think the he's an asset. I don't. I don't think. I don't think Nene passes his own test right now. I think he does because his, his deal is is on its last legs. Or right, he's only got a couple of years left. But yeah, I think it's two. The, but the next the next deal he gets is going to be tough because now we're really you, you know we were talking earlier about guys who can't he really can't stay healthy. I mean, he's proven, I think, that staying healthy is not not something that he can do. At this point, you know, he's been in the league, what, since 2002? So this is 13th, 14th year in the league? Jeez, I feel so old now. I can remember yesterday when he was tap dancing across the stage at Madison Square Garden. But the last time he played 82 games was 2010. That's, I mean, 2002, that's crazy. And then the the last time he played at least 70 games was 2011. So in the last four years, pretty much, or three years, 
39 games out of a possible 66. 61 games out of 82. 53 games out of 82. And by the way, before before that 80, that 82 game season he played, that was the only one. His entire career, he's only played 82 games once. He's only played more than 80 twice. He's only played more than 75, one, two, three, five times, and all of them before 2011. I love him as a talent. I just, you know, what are you paying for? You're paying for 60 percent of the season, right? And I think that his 60% has also gotten worse. I think that it's a little bit different when it's a guy who you know you're getting a really a strong A game for the games that they're in. I feel like he's lost a little bit of his fastball, and that will only get worse with time. He's not on the right side of the curve, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, which is a shame. He was, he was always one of my favorites. But, oh yeah, and he uh, and I'm happy he's on a good team now. You know he's gonna get he's gonna get a chance, and they have a lot of surrounding talent. But the Wizards are have are gonna have this really hard circumstance where they have a bunch of good guys. They're they're the team in some ways. I think you make an argument that of a non-major market, they might benefit the most from the cap exploding because they will might be able to if if Leontis is willing to spend it, get that guy that they wouldn't have gotten with the current cap. Yeah, uh, I think so. I, I I would argue that they're not as small a market as they make themselves out to be. <laughs> oh, ag- agreed, agreed. I mean, DC DC has a lot of benefits, but they're not but they're not a New York or LA under right. any circumstances. The other team like that is Philly. Philly, I, I don't they they've been. I I understand why they're doing what they're doing. I think they're being very smart, but they're at least major market adjacent. Yeah, again, they're they're actually like when you look at them as a TV market, they're in the top top third. They're definitely like Philly's definitely not a small market. Now their thing is their their I guess obstacle is going to have to convince people that what's happening now is just an end to means, and when they're ready to spend, they're actually going to spend. Because that that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to convince people. No, 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 that's not how we always are. It was just something in the temporary. Yeah, I I think they'll be able to do that though because that they also Philly's a city that as far as I know doesn't have any sort of negative rep, so it's not a place where people will turn I, down the money they offer. Yeah, it does. I mean, uh, it's not Philly, but like Philly fans being awful and stuff. Being well, a negative I mean, Nancy they're town. hard. But if you're comparing that to let's say like Oklahoma City or no, Oklahoma City yeah. is too far down the list, but like. Detroit, like, do you think a player would rather play, assuming equal team quality and coach no, quality and all no, that stuff? No, no, you're right. Philly is a more attractive decision than Detroit, mainly because I know that New York is an hour and a half away and D.C. is an hour and a half. Like, other places are close enough. You know, yeah, I guess, you know, it's a But, like, let's say Philly or Phoenix, Philly or Orlando, Philly or Portland, Philly or, like, I, I don't know if those, that's just straightforward. I think those Philly loses every one of those. The other one that I've always been surprised on, you've been around the league more than I have. I feel like New Orleans should be not obviously at the top of the list, but it feels like they should get more guys like like we're talking about with Anthony Davis, that the city should not be a detriment for guys. Oh no. I, I love New Orleans as a city. I love it. I love it. My my wife wants to move there wants to live there. I think and guys I talk to guys and they love it too. You know, everyone looks forward to getting vignettes and or vignettes or whatever they're called and stuff. Uh, and the, the the cuisine and the city has a lot of culture and history. I think what hurt New Orleans a lot was what the Shins did, owning that team, that they were, uh, you know, 
definitely penny pinching and cutting corners and things like that. Um, and it's interesting to see with, with the new ownership changing that that uh, perception, and then getting uh, you know getting a new practice facility and and kind of stepping up some of those things. I think I think a lot of New Orleans woes are tied to the belief that they didn't want to spend money. And I think spending money will change those perceptions. But you're absolutely right. There's a lot of, I mean, I think New Orleans over a lot of cities, a lot of cities. Yeah. I, th- I think New Orleans over Philly, I would. Yeah, I think I think New Orleans and D.C. are the two sleeping giants because they combine a good young core and a city that pl- that isn't the top of players list, but it's close enough. So I think that we're talking about the idea of guys having good choices. I think that somebody's going to be sold on that in the next couple of years, and I hope so because I love Anthony Davis, and so I'd rather have him stay there and bring somebody else in than the qualifying offer thing we talked about before. I, th- I think we're seeing a really cool thing going with a lot of younger players that are not averse from playing in small markets, and New Orleans is a small market, by the way. I should point that out. But I think between obviously LeBron kind of really put it on the map by going back to Cleveland, but Durant, everything Durant has ever said about Oklahoma City is about him loving it and never wanting to leave. And I think Jabari Parker really, really embracing going to Milwaukee and, and embracing the whole Midwestern roots thing, I think that's big as well. And I think we're going to see more and more guys be comfortable in their own places, you know, as long as, again, someone knows what they're doing running the show. I think, because even Kevin Love, he never complained about Minnesota until he got tired of freaking losing all the time and being blamed for it. Oh, and by the way, the Timberwolves skipped him on his on his extension. It was like one of those things that that's why he gets fed up and wants to leave. Not because, oh, you know, because, you know, we don't have beaches. And stuff. That has nothing to do with it. No, if, if it was a well-run team, he'd still be there. Hell, Kevin Garnett would still be there if it was a well-run team. Well, and you can also see that with where Kevin Love apparently chose to go. He could have gone anywhere he wanted to as a free agent. And he said, I'm willing to go to Cleveland, another city that is probably not in the top half, because they're great. They're going to be a really good team. He gets to play with the best player on the planet. So it's not like he made this huge upgrade in city quote unquote. Yeah. He, he, yeah. he chose, he chose not to go to LA. Yep. That was on the table. You know, he could have made it so that he was going to go there or he could have gone to the Bay area if that's what he wanted, obviously. And he chose to say, I'm going to go to Cleveland. And I don't know that. I think that's, I think that's in some ways the best bellwether so far because he didn't have to do that. He chose to do it. Yeah. Okay, well, unless you have something else to hit, thank you so much for taking the time. That was a lot of fun. No problem. Thanks a lot, Danny. Thanks again to Amin El-Hassan for taking the time. You can read him at ESPN Insider in ESPN. You can hear and see him on True TV, and hopefully you see him on the Worldwide Leader at points as well. And you can also follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow, one of my favorites, at Amin ESPN. That's A-M-I-N-E-S-P-N. That was great having him on. I, I love the conversation. We hit on a lot of things that I had been thinking about but not talked about on the podcast. And that was great enough for this week, but I'm also really excited that I'm going to record with Nate Duncan of Basketball Insiders. We've been joking for weeks now that it'd be really fun to do a 
overreaction podcast of week one of the NBA, and we're going to record that late this week. I'm hoping the episode itself will come out on Friday. So it'll be a double podcast week, but they're both so much fun. And hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you have any feedback, positive, negative, whatever, I always appreciate it. You can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Or you can email me, daniel.laroux at realgm.com, whatever makes you happy. And those insights and comments and criticisms do make it into the podcast. I really do appreciate them. So if you feel the urge to say something positive, negative, I get some on you know sound quality. That's what led to a quieter intro and outro was, was Grandma Lana, if you listen to Basketball Jones or now the starters. She commented on that, and I followed through. That's something that is important to me. And if you have something that that affects your enjoyability of the show and I want to make you happy, let me know. That's very, very, very important to me. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.